Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Stephen Avila. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. Stephen, I think the two of us hosting an episode is the last host pair permutation. Great to finally record an episode with you. Yeah, that's right. It's good to be in the studio with you today, Andrew. And hard to believe our tenure here is coming to an end. Fortunately, I think we have a pretty special episode in store for you listeners today. Today, we have Professor Harry Chernoff, Clinical Professor of Information, Operations, and Management Sciences here at NYU Stern. In practice, though, he is known here at the school as our leading real estate professor, where he teaches a number of classes on real estate finance and operations. Yeah, if you're interested in development, entrepreneurship, or learning more about the future trends of real estate, this episode is for you. What do you say, Andrew? Should we get started? Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Stephen Avila. And I'm Andrew Slotnick, and we are extremely pleased today to have Professor Harry Chernoff here. Professor Chernoff is the Clinical Professor of Information Operations and Management Sciences here at NYU Stern. Professor Chernoff, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Excellent. So one thing that we like to do with all of our guests when they come on Stern Chats is uh, an elevator pitch. So what is... Professor Chernoff in just under 30 seconds. Uh, uh, A person very interested in observing and experiencing uh, rather than just standing up in front of a room and uh, playing the sage and (laughs) teaching. Um, Background in quantitative work led to business school. And uh, I, I feel my... The thing that's put me where I am today is I'm open to opportunities. So without a lot of uh, planning, my careers in teaching and in real estate both happened as a surprise to me. Nice. Nice. So you said that you know you got your business degree and you have this strong analytical background. I'm curious, you know, where did you go to school? Where, how did you end up where you went? And uh, let's start the story there. Okay. Uh, well... Out of high school, I went into an engineering program at uh, University of Rochester and uh, took about a year, year and a half, uh, along with most of the class, deciding that probably wasn't the right field for me and decided to transfer to a business school and uh, picked Stern and traveled into New York City and been here ever since. Not to, to to put you on blast, but what year are we talking here in terms of the year that you, you came to Stern? Uh, middle 60s. Oh, Mid-60s. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I got my undergraduate degree um, at Stern and then master's and then through a couple of interesting uh, events decided to go on for a PhD, which was a surprise to me at the time. <laughs> we weren't and, even called Stern back then, right? Correct. But the names changed three, four times, so <laughs> I kind of just used Stern. Got it. And you College fell in love. of Business and Public Administration or something like that. Got it. Way back. And you fell in love with it so much that you decided to stick around and teach. Decided to stick around and teach. Really loved it. The only thing that was not uh, 
fitting my overall plans was how much teaching was paying back in the <laughs> 70s and 80s. I think my full-time salary at one point uh, starting was around 25000 a year. Wow. So uh, I was quickly looking for other means of supporting myself. Excellent. So you're known around Stern for being a professor of real estate um, within the, the the operations and management department here. Um, I guess just to just to get really started, where did your interest in real estate come from, and how did that interest blend into teaching? Um, the teaching actually happened first. Okay. And uh, I'll I'll give you that story. It's kind of interesting. My early on as high school, I've always been interested in, rather than reading about things, about observing and experiencing situations. But one of my first jobs while I was in high school during the summer was in a factory in a small town upstate New York where I'm from. And uh, it was an assembly line, and mm -hmm. I knew very little about it. They were making pocketbooks. And um, so after doing one of the manual jobs on the assembly line, for a while, it got boring enough that the only way I could keep myself interested was to see how many I could do, like, in an hour. So <laughs> I was breaking speed records and driving everybody else on the assembly line crazy. <laughs> so they moved me down the line to the next person where I had been building up a lot of inventory for it. That happened through the summer, and I got to see the entire factory by moving from step to step. So that experience and... That was about as pure operations as you can get, although I didn't know it was called that yet. Uh, my quantitative background at, at Stern undergrad um, was sort of a field in, uh, I think it was called quantitative methods at the time, and um, led me to discover operations management. The, the term uh, was not known here at school, we had no courses in operations management. So I brought that to the school and taught the first course that was ever given here in operations management. Wow. Uh, and when the, was that? Uh, I don't remember the exact year. Probably um, 70s. Okay. Maybe mid-70s. Um, got a job as teaching. Uh, Someone had canceled the teaching position and the chair of the management department, this was right after I graduated from the undergraduate Stern, I happened to be in his office and he got a call that someone had canceled a class and he asked me if I wanted to teach an undergrad management course called personnel administration. So I wasn't quite sure what it meant. And I said to him, is that kind of like management 101? And he said, yeah. And he said, uh, problem is this was a Friday. He said, it starts on Monday. So here's the book they use. Call me up over the weekend. Tell me if you want to do it. And um, I took a shot and uh, said, this looks like fun, and uh, taught my first course without any teaching desires or training before that. But I had a ball doing it, and it continued for a few semesters. Uh, I taught uh, undergraduate management courses. Um, that led to someone saying, wow, you're in the MBA program. If you want to teach, you should probably get in the PhD program. Mm. So I transferred into the PhD program and um, 
got my PhD, and that's sort of when the operations management concept hit and started teaching at for Stern full-time while I was still getting my doctorate. Wow. Got it. So you guest lectured for one of my classes, Ben Atkins' real estate class, um, and it was great having you in. But you mentioned earlier on that to, to supplement some of your teaching, you worked in operations at a sandwich company? Is that, <laughs> yes. Maybe can you talk a little bit about that? My, my, my first consulting job uh, and one of my best ones was with a, a national chain sandwich company. They're not around too much anymore now, but it's called Blimpy. Oh, I love Blimpy. Yeah, mm. me too. And um, the guys that owned it were good friends of mine. And uh, they were very strong in marketing and franchising, but they had no operations department. So they needed a lot of help with that. And I started working with them and developed really a training school for them, for their new franchisees, and was doing so well with that that I decided to spend more time uh, doing consulting and told Stern I was going to just teach part-time. Now, that worked out all right, except for the fact that I was living in faculty housing, and there's a rule at the school that if you're not full-time, you can't live in faculty housing. Interesting. So I basically was getting evicted by NYU, mm. my, my parents, uh, which I think <laughs> of NYU as, so I've been here so long. And um, I had to find a place to live and quickly uh, made a snap decision, which I think I mentioned in the real estate class, made most of the early mistakes you can make in real estate and bought the first thing that I saw was a co-op uh, in the neighborhood here and um, realized that after I owned it and put it back on the market and sold it and made, um, which at the time was a big hit, about $19,000 in maybe two months wow. of time. It was almost your teaching salary back it, then. Almost. I was full, full time. So <laughs> nice. said, wow, I did this without knowing anything about real estate at all. Maybe if I spent a little time and uh, studied this a bit, I'll start looking for another deal. Uh, I still needed an apartment to move into and um, uh, learned some good real estate skills at the time and bought my first real estate deal. Wow. So it almost seems like you kind of fell into the, uh, this apartment and this deal and you know, obviously had great success with your first one. What was it about that that triggered something in you that said, oh, maybe this is something I'd like to do as a living? You no, know, it's a combination of things. I, I fell into the teaching also, and that's something I really loved, but it didn't pay much. The real estate seemed to be pretty easy to do, and it paid really well. So putting those two together, it was an issue of can you do both at the same time, almost full-time? And... Um, with my teaching schedule, uh, number of courses a year and so on, it left me ample time to uh, start a few real estate deals. And I just started that dual career. Um, it was exciting. Real estate's really fun. It's got a lot of operations in it. And uh, it's very lucrative. Excellent. So um, you're also known for having a number of different real estate projects around the city. Um, I believe that you've had experience owning hotels. You went up from just having that one neighborhood apartment. Can you maybe talk about the transition from buying and selling just for yourself and then going more into a proper business of I'm going to teach and then I'm also going to be a, a either a, a buyer and seller of real estate, a developer, a manager, et cetera? Sure. Um, 
I started this out with zero money. So I needed, I couldn't do it by myself even from the beginning. Um, I developed a model that uh, is well known these days where you bring in equity partners. So I hit first on the group of kind of family and friends, people that know and love you uh, in the beginning and trust you and uh, raised some money and did the first few deals that way. Um, I've kept that same model throughout my career and I put uh, investors into every deal I do, even to this day. So it was a question of uh, finding a property that was cheap enough. We're dealing now with maybe the early 80s uh, and I would analyze 10 buildings for sale and spend weeks doing huge amounts of analysis, finally making a short list of three and buying one. And then looking back on it uh, two, three years later, uh, I should have bought all 10 because <laughs> right, exactly. everything was good at that point. Um, so it was, um, it, it was an issue of... Um, Developing a, a, an investment thesis or model that worked and using, raising the money from both uh, borrowing, from leveraging the deals and getting uh, partners in and sharing the deals. So I'd take half the deal instead of all the deal and I'd be happy to share the profits in it. What's it like starting this real estate endeavor in New York City? I think a lot of us see New York as this crazy jungle of opportunity sure. and pitfalls and all of the things really you can think about. So yeah, just would be curious to get your thoughts on it's that. It's really hard. It's probably the hardest place in the world to do it. Um, it's competitive. Everybody's smart. And there's a lot of money around. Um, but there's a huge amount of product and there's huge demand. So... You can always rent out commercial and retail space, and you can always rent out apartments. There's no vacancy. So the sort of counteracting forces that make it very exciting. Being in a position where I couldn't really choose an area to specialize in, I had to just find good deals. So the first one would be a apartment building. The second one was a SRO, a single room occupancy, that was a kind of a horror show to manage, but it came with a, um, a legal opportunity to rent as transient the rooms, which legally you can't do with regular class A apartments. So can, can that you talk developed more about that? into a hotel. I'm sorry? What, what is that? Can you just elaborate well, more on that? Well, class A apartments are the kind of apartments that all of us live in. Okay. Uh, uh, I know that you do, too, because it's kind of defined as an apartment that has its own bathroom. Uh, if there's apartments that share a bathroom on the floor, kind of like a Y situation, uh, those are rooming houses or Class B housing, mm. and SROs fit that. But the difference between the two uh, is that the Class B housing you can rent by the day or week, or weekends or whatever, and you can't do that in a Class A apartment. So that's how the hotel idea got started. Found a property that had uh, about 40 rooms in Chelsea, and um, 10 of them were vacant. And with a couple partners, we decided to uh, make the 10 rooms 
hotel rooms and fix them up. So instead of $10, $15 a night, we could get, um, you know, 80 to $100 uh, a, a week for them, or, or even in some cases, $40 a night. And um, as the SRO tenants moved out, we grew the number of hotel rooms and the Chelsea Inn got started and I ended up owning it and running it for uh, about 25 years. It, it bought it in 1988 and it, I just sold it uh, three years ago. Wow. Wow. I could never imagine owning a hotel. Do you have any like interesting stories that, was, that, you, that you could share? Yeah, I mean, it was totally scary. The, <laughs> the, the benefit came from, uh, again, kind of being lucky. I had hired a housekeeper, a Polish woman, young Polish woman, who uh, was very smart and good at cleaning the rooms and then started to develop uh, running the other housekeepers. And after her English skills got a little bit better, I found out that she was a hospital administrator from Poland. So oh, wow. She's a very talented. Put her in charge of the whole hotel. She became the general manager, and she was uh, uh, a huge amount of value, and she stayed with me for the whole time period that we owned the hotel. That's the dream is to create a business where you find somebody that can be a partner with you and you can trust to, to, to work and, and it, it enables those endeavors to be much more enjoyable and, and for you to dedicate your time on other things like teaching, et cetera. Totally. Um, That's really what made it work. Exactly. So one other thing that, that Stephen and I did some research on that, that we learned about you is you also own properties in other countries. Um, particularly Panama. How did you how did you venture out of the New York outside of the United States real estate market and start thinking about other places? Well, up until about two thousand and three or two thousand and four, I had only done deals in the New York City area, and my part of my thesis was I wanted something where I knew the area, knew the laws, zoning rules, and had contacts, and can go to the property every day if I need Got to. Um, in around 2003 and four, I found myself not being able to find uh, deals that were um, effective at the prices that were being asked. I felt everything was overpriced. I didn't think the market was going to continue to grow, which I was wrong at. It, it did continue to grow, but I thought I had to look somewhere else. And actually, the first place I moved out to uh, for some deals was in Las Vegas. But I had a, I had started teaching a real estate course here at Stern, and one of my former students started working with a developer that was doing a deal in Panama. And he said, uh, he contacted me, he said, I've got the perfect thing for you. Uh, we could use some help and investment. Uh, down here, we're putting together a hotel, restaurant, and bar in a very cool place in Panama City. Uh, that's a really nice uh, developing country and area. And uh, would you like to get involved in it? And I said, no way. Uh, <laughs> not investing money in some... The only thing I knew about Panama at the time was related to Noriega. And so... Mariana Rivera, at least. <laughs> right. Well, sure. Uh, uh, that was probably a little bit before him, but it was... Um, it was a matter of, uh, you know, saying, 
you know, I don't think I want to be involved in this, putting money into this corrupt Latin American country, but I'll come down and take a look at it. So I took a trip down, found it to be totally opposite from what my vision had been, and fell in love with it. So that's sort of what got me started down there. Went in with this group. Uh, my former student really was the one who developed the whole deal. I had little to do with it other than just some advice but um, and some investment. Uh, and then the <laughs> that's group— That's important too. <laughs> yeah. And then the group uh, went on to uh, buy another property and do another deal down there a couple years later. And this is now about seven years ago, and they're both doing extremely well. Wow. You know, bringing it back locally for a bit, you know, you mentioning the fact that you had a hotel um, in Chelsea, and I can't imagine the growth and development and the changes of the city, particularly that neighborhood. Can you just talk about the transformation of maybe New York City and maybe just your approach to real estate over the course of your career? Yeah, the one advantage I got by not being able to put myself in a particular niche in terms of what kind of real estate I did is I ended up knowing commercial office buildings, retail, industrial, hotel, and residential. So I had to learn all of them. And I had at one point maybe one deal in each of those industries, which is, is not usual. Um, so I got to enjoy, if one was not doing well, some of them are counter-cyclical and something else would be doing well. Like when the rental market's strong, People maybe aren't buying co-ops as much and vice versa. So um, the New York City has always had a huge demand. People that live here need places to work and, and live. Uh, foreigners are very interested in making investments in New York. And depending on who's doing well, when Europe will be South Americans then they'll be having financial trouble. It'll be um, Asians, like maybe Chinese or Japanese are interested in, or Europeans. But there's always some country with investors that are interested in buying property in New York. So the markets were strong all the time. Mm. So I guess, how did you transition then towards Las Vegas, you mentioned, um, between New York and Panama? You, you you did some development out there. What about the Vegas area interested you? Well, the the um, as I said, I was having trouble finding good deals here. We we measured deals in something we call cap rate. It's a, sort of a, a return on your asset that you can get. Uh, and in New York, at the high prices, the best deals were looking at about a two or three percent. And when I went out to Vegas. The first deal that I saw, which was a uh, building that would be for retail and office, uh, had a nine cap. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it was, you know, something absurd. It was so high and looked really good. And uh, it was a growing city. The macro factors were strong. Population movement there was good. A lot of construction. And... Um, uh, so in about 2007, uh, went to <laughs> first deal out there. And um, unfortunately, even with all the work and due diligence that we put in, uh, nobody really forecast the crash. And uh, as we got started with that deal, we got one tenant in place 
And then uh, the crash started. The week the first tenant signed their lease, Lehman went down, and it was a disaster after that. We had to make a decision to bail out quickly or kind of feed it financially. And thank goodness for two factors. One, that first tenant, which was Dunkin' Donuts, and there's still a tenant in that building. And I, I thank for, I'm thankful to them because they kept us alive. And secondly, that the interest rates fell right. so much. So where we were planning an interest rate of about seven, it fell like money costs like went to zero and our our interest was about 3%. So between those two factors, we managed to hold on to it and um, sit with an empty building pretty much for about five years. And then it started to fill and we, we filled the building 100% in around 2015. Wow. So, I mean, Las Vegas is kind of known as the epicenter of the real estate crash when we think back to it, you know, in terms of this huge development and kind of the prices that came down and all the rest. What's that like, you know, going through something like that and just, you know, are you, I mean, you've got to be scared, you're nervous. Sure. What, what's going on? It's difficult. I mean, it kind of fits Vegas because people are in there gambling on everything else. So the real estate people were doing the same thing. And then it crashed, you know, the seven came out and they cleared the Everybody board. Home. <laughs> yep. Everybody got wiped. And, and what is usual the areas that had the highest growth rate for three to five years prior to the crash and the three areas we were looking to go to, uh, Southern Florida, the Miami area, Vegas, and areas in, say, Arizona around Phoenix, became the three worst hit by the crash right. and had the quickest downfall where real estate values fell 60 70%, which mm. was like, huge amounts and just watch people drop out. But like any real estate cycle, it makes for opportunities also. So there's properties available to buy at cheaper prices if you're a believer that it's going to come back. Did you have those nerves of steel and say like, okay, it's in the crisis? No, we were crisis. scared to death. Okay, got it. We were definitely <laughs> scared to death. I, if the money had been large that we would have had to put in yearly uh, to keep it alive. We probably wouldn't have done it. My partner who lives in California wanted a bail. And I, you know, at the worst time, we had to put in about $30,000 uh, per year for a couple of years. So splitting that with a partner, we were, we were okay with, uh, we were okay with taking that chance and doing it. But had it been a lot worse, uh, we couldn't have. And we would have been as scared as everybody else. I feel like Las Vegas real estate has come back a lot recently, and it's quite hot now from yeah, what I read. Yeah, it's grown back up again. And b believe it or not, it's still not back to that 2008 level. Wow. So in other words, our property, if we sold it, we can barely sell it to get out even, even oh, wow. 10 years later. Wow. However, cash flow-wise, it's doing well, and it makes money every year. But we're going to be in it for a while more. Well, trying to then looking into the future, what what markets are on your radar of interest? You know, I think there was just a journal article a few weeks ago about uh, folks our age being millennials moving back out to the suburbs and out just outside Phoenix was like another hot spot again. You mentioned earlier yeah, the there, same areas are hot. The same, uh, the same Florida, areas. Phoenix, and Vegas. It's interesting. Think of the real estate market as cyclical. It, what's good now and 
three or seven or whatever number of years the cycle takes is going to look bad, but it's going to come back again. And why is a condominium in Miami on Biscayne Boulevard attractive at one point? Because it's Florida and Miami and it's warm and sunny and beautiful. So if the market turns down, it's still going to be warm and sunny and beautiful <laughs> three years later. It's not rocket science. And it'll come back again. So they're, it's repetitive. I was in an interview in undergrad for a very well-known real estate private equity fund now. And they asked me, they said, so what kind of real estate would you be interested in buying? And I said, warm and sunny real estate, sure. Miami, Florida. And they're like, yeah, it's too cyclical. It goes in and out. So, But, but it at does the same everywhere. Time, the only place it doesn't, it's still cyclical, but it moves. The volatility is much less. It's a place like New York. Right. Uh, Manhattan during the crash, you know, the worst falls were 5 to 10%. Now, why is that? Because people on Manhattan property weren't running. You know, they're mostly, mostly wealthy. Uh, they can withstand a few years of not selling. Right. And that's exactly what they did. And then it came back, it came back pretty quickly. Thinking, and additionally to future trends, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on companies like WeWork and Airbnb and, you know, some of these other tech startups that seem to be disrupting, and I'm using air quotes because I feel like that word gets thrown around a lot. I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on how that'll impact, you know, yeah, the I real mean, estate I'm more a, broadly. I'm a believer in that concept. It's interesting, uh, a couple of weeks ago this year, um, one of my former students with a couple other executives from WeWork, he's working for WeWork now, came in to visit and we were talking about it. Um, they're having some problems now, but basically the concept is a, a good one. It's interesting. It's not that new. It was tried in the 90s. We had some office structures where we were sharing, you know, uh, admins and copy machines and conference rooms and having four or five businesses uh, rent space. So the, and, but working together in an open environment without walls in different departments or even different companies, it's a strange environment. Uh, it works for some people, doesn't work for others. One of our site visits in, our, in my Vegas course is at uh, Zappos, which is uh, about as an ex extreme a culture change as you can see. And walking through there, I admire their ability to be as efficient and effective as they are as a business. And yet, I couldn't work in there for like a day, which I mean, that's, it's just wide open, no rules, no bosses. Everybody kind of does what they want to do when they want to do it. Everywhere I worked prior to Stern had an open space environment. Right? So I don't, I don't know any different, but... Similarly to what Professor Turnoff was saying, it can be tough. Like it, like if you want to have like that private phone call, you have to find that room. Um, but yeah, a lot of companies really like it, and it's catching on. Is that how the West Wing of the White House is set up? Um, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, uh, I'd, I'd be curious: Is your future job? Will you be working? Yes, in an I will also area? be in, a, in, a, in yeah, an open same. workspace. So it does seem like the trends do seem to be appealing in this, it, in this it, way. It seems to me that the the young generation. Uh, doesn't even have that word in their vocabulary anymore, privacy. Right. It's like they they work open with other people. They they spend their free time. Every All their friends know where they are every moment of the day. Um, I was always looking for some place to hide and find some little 
cubicles somewhere at the top of the library where you could, <laughs> you know, read or study or something like that. And everybody seems to be moving in the opposite direction. Interesting related to Vegas is that we brought this issue up from an operations point of view to the casinos. The the gaming uh, industry is realizing that. And there's there, the companies that make slot machines have totally redesigned them. No longer do people want to sit. The younger players by themselves at a slot machine. They're making machines that have four or five seats that you can go to with a small group with friends and all play it simultaneously. And almost all the new games are coming out that way. Yeah, I've seen those. And they're actually, they are a lot more fun. <laughs> I, I hate to admit that because, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just a slot machine. But, yeah, there is something yeah, about Unless that you social... want to be alone and yeah, right. hiding. <laughs> right, right. Just to bring more of the Vegas analogy, I mean, that's why you go to the craps table is because you get to play together as a team. And exactly. It's got that environment. Um, as the, I mean, that's interesting from a teaching point of view, too, because as, you know, having taught as long as I have now, uh, the students are different, hmm. so the courses need to change. Um, when I started off teaching real estate, which started as just doing a, a lecture for a couple of clubs, and then some students said, hey, how about a course? And then it grew in popularity, and one of my friends and guest speakers was Ben Atkins, one you, you mentioned, and uh, as soon as it got to be that we needed a third or fourth section of the course, I didn't really have the time to teach them, and I asked Ben if he'd be interested. And luckily for me and for Stern, he was, and he does an amazing job at it, and he's teaching two large sections also now. He's great. I mean, so I'm taking the, the effectively the MBA intro to real estate class with, with Ben Atkins. Um, he has his own real estate business but comes in and teaches two classes. And so for any of you incoming students out there, keep an eye for both Professor Turnoff and uh, Professor Atkins um, for that class. But just to go beyond that class, you were also very well known now for leading classes to both Las Vegas and Panama. <laughs> you take a group of Stern students each year and you guys visit different different sites, do different things. How did that, um, how did that idea come up and, and what do you guys actually do? I, I hate to talk about it too much because People are jealous of that. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I get a lot of I get a lot of grief from my friends and colleagues that are faculty, like they want to come along too. Um, it gets back to really my initial uh, what I love and my personality, which is observing and ex experiencing. And rather than studying it in a classroom, I want to get out and watch businesses do it. So most of my contacts at this time, when I was maybe now about eleven years ago. Um, were growing in Las Vegas, and it's obviously a place people kind of have fun and think about, you know, going there for a bachelor party or something like that, as uh, and they're hot for it. I say, hey, why don't we go and study how this city develops its entertainment? So operations in entertainment, call in Las Vegas, got started. Um, the idea came sitting around a table with some faculty members here, and someone suggested, you want to go out and study. It's two good choices. How about Vegas or Disney World? Right. And so I considered the choices for about 12 seconds and said, <laughs> I think I'm going to do Vegas. And um, started calling people out there. It's amazing how cooperative people are 
in Vegas. Uh, one of my former students, who I think you've had on the show, uh, Lorenzo Frittita, yep. mm-hmm. who's a uh, alum of Stern MBA and also one of our uh, donors and uh, scholarship uh, donors, um, remained a good friend. And uh, he and his brother run a chain of hotels in Vegas. He's made it available to me with all of their executives. So two of our days there, we are in a classroom talking to top executives there. And then we do a sort of model comparison between their smaller hotels and uh, that are dedicated to locals and local gaming to the Strip. And so we add in also... Uh, MGM and do a couple of days at uh, hotel casinos like MGM, the Bellagio, Aria, those type also, and look at the comparisons. So the the it developed into hotel, resort, food and beverage, real estate development, uh, gaming, of course, and um, the fifth area. What I call Las Vegas nightlife, <laughs> which there was a lot to add in there. We ended up choosing nightclubs, Cirque du Soleil, and UFC, uh, and we do a big site visit in each one of those three. Kind of go backstage when they're empty and learn how they're run, uh, and then the class goes in as a customer and sees it as a guest would see it. So you get the comparison of what kind of decisions and challenges the executives are facing and then what the actual entertainment performance looks like to the crowd. Of course, it's uh, hugely successful. I mean, for any potential students that are thinking about coming to Stern, I think you just sold them on a a pretty incredible experience. Um, And and I guess thinking about potential students, current students, us at the table – you know, for those of us that are interested in potentially getting into real estate and making this, you know, either a career or a component of our lives, you know, what advice do you have for folks that are just getting started that may not have the most experience, most money, but are interested in this field? What would you say to them? I think the the way to start is to jump in with one course. If you and and I think that course is really the basic development course, the one we were talking about that right. that um, I teach, and. Uh, It's designed in a way for people who might not ever do a real estate purchase other than their own home or a condo or a co-op. And we start the course off that way and then grow it to a small investment um, that has passive income but might be also supplying a place to live and then two straight real estate deals. So the course and and the, the title sort of says that it's real estate development and entrepreneurship. It talks about how to get started in the industry if you are small, don't have the knowledge yet, and don't have a lot of money yet. So how to solve those problems. Great. Excellent. Well, Professor Harry Turnoff, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was really great hearing about your experience at Stern over all these years uh, about the real estate program. Um, So thank you for coming down. Thank you. I uh, appreciate the advertising for the courses also. And the uh, both the Vegas and the Panama course, we do the same thing there. And Ops in New York City are all uh, offshoots of that getting out of the classroom and 
going to see what's happening in the real world. And you're making me want to take my MBA all over again. I know, right? <laughs> Thanks again, Professor. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>